Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World. By Keller Easterling. First published by Verso. 2021. Preface. The objects in a simple room, table, chair, lamp, pen, teapot, teacup, apple, and window, are performing. Although static, they are projecting latent potentials, activities, and relationships. The chair is sized to accommodate a seated human body, and the table is sized to allow the human and the chair to slide underneath it. The teapot and teacup have handles that fingers can wrap around, and the apple is a fruit that a hand can grasp. Some of the interactions are timed. The tea will go cold. The sun will go down, and the lamp will go on. Each of the objects in the assembly offers some properties or capacities that are in interplay. Culture is very good at pointing to things and calling their name, but not so good at describing the chemistry between things or the repertoires they enact. It is easy to see how a sailor or a meteorologist works within swirling kinetic atmospheres of air or water, but not so easy to see the interactivity between static objects that make up any ordinary surrounding environment. These things with names, shapes, and outlines are usually valued in markets and possessed as property, and they are generally regarded to be inert or inactive rather than dancing with interdependent potentials. The periodic table charts elements according to their reactivity, volatility, or tendency to generate molecular bonds. But if thousands of years of history are any evidence, culture perceives substances like silver and gold not as entities in an array of potentials, but as objects, lumps of metal to be hoarded and beaten into adornments or currencies in a primitive urge for power. Maybe when encountering most substances, technologies, and practices, the modern Enlightenment mind prefers to pluck them from their active matrix and fix their name and position rather than indulging an imagination about their interdependence. And yet, while perhaps not foregrounded in many cultural scripts, it is quite common to get through the day by managing potentials. The most resourceful, practical cooks know how to triangulate between the contents of their refrigerator, their pantry, and the food preferences of those for whom they wish to cook. Rather than cooking from a recipe, the mind clicks through hundreds of possible combinations between a half cup of milk that will only last one more day, two eggs, frozen peas, baking soda, cilantro leaves, hot sauce, a half stick of butter, a cheese rind, tomato paste, a tin of sardines, and two bananas. Quantities, expiration dates, cooking times, the mood and hunger of the intended recipient, and thousands of other factors are thrown into the calculations until the cook arrives at a meal that is often mistakenly treated as a relatively simple outcome. A parent with squabbling children does not attempt to litigate or pass the content of the argument, but rather manages potentials in the environment. They might lower the temperature of the room, move a chair into the light, increase the blood sugar of one child, or introduce a pet into the arms of another so that the chemistry of the room no longer induces or supports violence. A dog hears a human speak the words, good girl, but it does not take meaning from the lexical expression alone. The dog also gathers meaning from many other cues and relative positions between things in context, whether the human is holding a leash and their position relative to the door or the dog bowl. Together with the sound of words, the dog assesses all of these potentials. Similarly, an urbanist, with something like a canine mind, observes the city as a collection of reactive or interdependent components. It is easy to see the choreography of moving parts like cars and pedestrians as they synchronize and intersect. But urbanists look at urban spaces like streets and assess potentials even in the relationships between their static solids.
An ethnographer may interview the inhabitants. An economist may gather data about livelihood. But an urbanist observes an interplay of physical contours that are also expressing limits, capacities, and values. A street with many small lots, many doors and windows, and a heterogeneous mixture of uses possesses a chemistry different from a street with only a few large lots, one entry, and one function. Urbanists may observe the relationship between a traffic light, a business that offers coffee in the morning, and a set of buildings that have inhabitants who care for the street. And they can see the matrix of exchanges between a subway stop and a giant building with a huge volume of inhabitants. Not morphology alone, but the interaction between components, determines the richness of this loose and changeable assembly of parts. There may be no set structural rules and few determinants, only some dynamic markers of changing relationships. The chemist, cook, parent, dog, or urbanist is considering the activities and dispositions of objects, where disposition describes the agency or potential imminent in an arrangement, a property or propensity within a context or relationship. You might assess the disposition of someone's personality over time or the disposition of a house in relation to the weather or landscape, just as you might describe the disposition of an organization. The disposition of any organization makes some things possible and some things impossible. A ball on an inclined plane possesses disposition. Its position and geometry in relation to gravity and the pitch of the plane sets up a potential point one even though it may seem to be all too obvious, thinking in this way is at once common, often unexpressed, and profoundly underexploited. It requires an inversion of the dominant cultural constructs that are dependent on declaration, labeling or defining the recipe, style, property, or ideology. Favoring nominative or quantitative expressions over expressions of disposition, culture privileges what philosopher Gilbert Ryle called the difference between knowing that and knowing how, something like the difference between knowing the right answer and exercising experienced reactions unfolding over time. This book rehearses the faculties of knowing how. It asks readers to look with half-closed eyes at the world, focusing not only on objects with names, shapes, and outlines, but also on the matrix or medium of activities and latent potentials that those objects generate. It looks beyond object to matrix. It looks beyond nominative expressions to infinitive expressions of activity and interplay. And it looks beyond declared ideologies to undeclared dispositions, beyond the authority of economic or political labels that often obscure or misrepresent latent potentials in organizations of all kinds. A focus on medium over object is ever present in many disciplines. The oncologist follows not only the tumor but also the chemical fluctuations in surrounding tissues. The geologist does not merely taxonomize specimens but rather reads them as traces of a process. The physicist sees all of matter as existing only through ongoing entangled relationships. Point two, the actor in the theater transmits information not only through words but also through interdependent actions. Even media theorists are returning to elemental understandings of media as surrounding environments of air, water, earth, or fire. To further jostle the lexical, quantitative, or ideological expressions on which knowing that relies, this book models ideas in lumpy, heavy, physical space. By looking at space as a medium, it is in dialogue with all those, media theorists among them, who are returning to the Latin root of the word medium, medius. Not bound by associations with communication technologies, medium in this context means middle, or media. This spatial language is not just for specialists but rather for a broad audience of thinkers.
Space is an inclusive mixing chamber, an especially potent carrier of overlapping political, financial, and environmental ecologies that graphically model some of the world's most intractable dilemmas. Culture may give more governing authority to the newest technologies or to legal or economic abstractions, but space possesses information, value, and potential beyond financial or geometric assessments, and it is itself a technology of innovation. Space is also a carrier of polity, dispositions and temperaments that can elude or enhance the declarations of political platforms. Perhaps most important, this book exercises faculties for not only observing this space but also changing or designing it. Designers are already renovating an approach to form itself to address emergent global urban spaces and organizations. They are using forms for designing not only things but the interplay between things, active forms that enact change in urban spaces, larger territories, and even planetary atmospheres. Speaking to any reader in any discipline as a designer, the discussion treats design in space as a form of activism with special powers. Just as a contemplation of medium inverts the customary focus on object over field or figure over ground, this medium design may prompt practical inventions and paradigm shifts that fundamentally alter approaches to all kinds of political and environmental dilemmas. Introduction Designing is entangling against all reason, some of culture's intractable dilemmas seem to create political, social, and environmental impossibilities, from unchecked concentrations of authoritarian power to organizational cross-purposes to extremes of inequality and climate cataclysms. Consider just a few of these as they are inscribed in spaces and territories. While global warming is increasingly self-evident, it continues to attract naysayers. Point one typhoons, hurricanes, and wildfires have given the world a dramatic preview of some inevitable and lethal effects, as scientists report that greenhouse gas emissions are accelerating like a speeding freight train too but governments around the world nevertheless defy global compacts attempting to alleviate the situation. A global pandemic like COVID-19 is an X-ray of racial injustice and economic inequality as well as a rehearsal for climate catastrophe. Viruses, like atmospheric chemicals, float across national boundaries. They easily infect Homo economicus. They cannot be evaluated without considering a complex of epidemiological, ethnographic, demographic, economic, and cultural evidence. Just as structural racism in the United States disproportionately puts people of color at a higher risk, many factors can exacerbate illness. Only a more robust interplay between sectors of community can deliver health and welfare. But despite repeated failures, regimes like the United States continue to use thin econometrics to address a biological agent and broken policing to protect whiteness and bloated wealth. Other contagions carry their own forms of violence. Repeatable formulas for space, spatial products for skyscrapers, malls, golf courses, airports, logistical landscapes, and everything in between, now populate repeatable formulas for entire cities. And many of these are free economic zones that legalize exemptions from law, privileging the freedom of corporations and offshore finance so that they can operate outside the inconveniences of taxes or labor and environmental regulations. Sweetened with incentives and bathed in elaborate promotional fantasies, this massive, global, infrastructural installation of corporate capital is a major engine of inequality, labor abuse, and environmental brinkmanship. And it is rapidly generating a new layer of the Earth's crust. 
the same global infrastructure space has perfectly streamlined the movements of billions of products and tens of millions of tourists and cheap laborious in free-zoned cities. Point three, but at a time when more than 70 million people in the world are displaced, more than at any other time in history, somehow, there is no way to move a few million people away from atrocities surrounding political conflict. Point four, and there are still so few ways to accommodate economic or environmental migrations. The legal, logistical, or spatial ingenuity applied to commercial movements is suddenly absent in these situations. The nation-state has a dumb on-off button to grant or deny citizenship and asylum. And the NGOcracy offers as its best idea storage in a refugee camp, a form of detention lasting, on average, 17 years. Exacerbating inequality and climate change, more and more people live in cities, but in peripheral areas that are increasingly less dense and staggering in size. Point five, they house sprawling wealth as well as the precarity associated with disenfranchisement and migration. According to some predictions, by 2050, this mostly unplanned period urban development, now densifying more rapidly, will cover 3.1 million square kilometers, the size of the entire country of India. Point six, preceding the financial crisis of 2008, there was ample evidence of increased risk from the repackaging of the subprime loans that were attached to buildings in this sprawling periphery. But the financial incentives overwhelmed the certain knowledge of risk. In the global economic collapse that ensued, buildings all over the world visibly fell into ruin. The evening news stared anxiously at the individual home, the germ of this mortgage crisis, as it reported about increased foreclosure rates. But even as the market flooded with foreclosures, new housing was treated as a sign of economic confidence. At any one moment, economists and financiers regarded the house as both a positive and a negative economic indicator, an object simultaneously exacerbating and relieving financial crisis. These assessments were regarded not as irrational or adult but as sound economic science. Driverless vehicles, traveling in platoons, promised a perfect driving, save fuel, and increase productivity. As is the case with the advent of many new technologies, from railroads and radios to cars and digital devices, this latest technology is treated as an ultimate or superior platform that should make all others obsolete. And digital data is treated as the only information of consequence. But, as has now become abundantly clear, even if fleets of driverless cars are used in lieu of transit, they will create unprecedented forms of traffic congestion, a smart vehicle in a dumb traffic jam. Although very different in content, all of these dilemmas, together with the powers that preside over them, share an underlying political chemistry that reflects dominant cultural habits. The human and non-human entities involved, whether elected officials, construction companies, legislative bodies, or financial institutions, prefer to overlook information that disrupts the status quo or the habitual solution. Ideological narratives or other reinforcing group behaviors galvanize adherence even in the face of looming disaster, and the most extreme and impractical situations can survive. From within its echo chamber, the prevailing power circulates only compatible or convenient evidence in a closed loop. Then, given the desire for autonomy or supremacy, when the closed loop is confronted with extrinsic or contradictory information, it often retaliates with a binary fight against any challenge to that status quo. In the face of obvious failure, the organization assumes that its solutions and guiding logics were simply not applied with sufficient rigor. The loop was not tight enough. The group was not ideologically pure enough. 
the organization then circles the wagons and vilifies the non-conforming element. The loop and the binary reinforce each other. Evidence of global warming, pandemics, structural racism, financial risk, or technological failure are conveniently deleted. Labor abuse and inequality are soft, peddled so as not to intrude on the short-term financial advantages of wealth and power. And the worker who challenges the free trade of corporations, or the migrant who challenges the borders of the nation, is now deemed to be a contradiction that is the enemy of stasis and security. The loop and the binary are difficult to escape when default cultural habits of mind reinforce its tautologies and false logics. The modern Enlightenment mind is still present and still replacing God with ideological constructs cobbled together into false holes. Religions, philosophies, and political regimes mirror each other with different forms of ideational monotheism that search for the one and only, the universal, the elementary particle, and the telos. The narrative arcs of cultural stories bend toward utopian or dystopian ultimates. Modernist scripts also fuel the binary fight, since to reinforce the one, bombastic arguments must naturally ask for successive rather than coexistent thoughts or practices. They must wipe away the incumbent. The new right answer must kill the old right answer, and the new elementary particle must now pass the world. The new technology, from railroads to digital communications, must replace the obsolete technology to create the one and only new platform. And, still in a monistic thrall, each successor is portrayed as redemptive, transcendent, and liberating. The quest for an impossible freedom usually accompanies these heroic trajectories. Manichaean struggles between false oppositions progress toward emancipatory perfection. Chains are shed as each new manifesto is unleashed. Your enemies, like capital, must be comprehensively defeated. Political philosophies, example, Marxism, inspire what philosopher Vilem Flusser calls textolatry, pure adherence to a theory as the only path towards sufficiently sharp critique. Point seven. And the impossibility of total epic victory often encourages delay and retreat into narrower and narrower cul-de-sacs that can provide the comfort of autonomy. But besides these obvious political ultimates, the modern world is one in which emergent ideas must be labeled radical or post. It is a world in which developers of digital technologies long for the algorithm or Turing complete code that, readable across many machines, approaches the universal. It is a world that would take seriously Francis Fukuyama's comical claims about the end of history. Point eight Homo economicus and Westfalian sovereignty are darlings of most histories. And even science fiction stories often assume the shape of a mothball tragedy with heroes and struggles. In all these narratives, mimicking religion or war, cultural change can only occur through combat or collapse. And the fight should build to a revolution or an apocalyptic burnout. These are the hackneyed plotlines of the humanities. In the most general terms, maybe the modern mind is addicted to a common, stubborn desire to be right or to know that. In the earliest moments of development, adults hammer into the minds of children the need to provide the right answer, just as they themselves go to bed every night telling themselves that they were right all along. Being right is structurally self-reinforcing, the loop par excellence. In a recent book about winning arguments, Stanley Fish quotes an exchange from Monty Python's The Argument Clinic. Michael Palin, who has come to the clinic to pay for an argument, says, argument is an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of anything the other person says. 
John Cleese replies, it is not. Unwittingly adding to the comedy, Fish uses the exchange to prove that he himself was right all along about the ubiquity of argument. Point nine, he can perpetually say, there you are, you see. He will always be right about the fight that is essential to being right and the argument that is essential to ideation. Culture congratulates itself on the reasonable thinking that arrives at proofs of this sort. And that same culture is susceptible to political bullies or demagogues who set themselves up as another modern replacement for God offering the drug of being right to their following. Some of these entities, whether individuals or organizations, are political superbucks, something like resistant strains of microorganisms. Thriving on the oscillation between loop and binary, they can attract arenas full of supporters chanting in unison, supporters easily galvanized by a face-off against any non-conforming element. Under the sway of these habits, culture then continues banging away with the same blunt tools that resist innovation. Shorelines flood due to global warming, diseases take hold, a financial crisis makes properties worth less than nothing, or a migration of refugees swells in number. If economic and military templates of causation provide no explanation, if new technologies provide no solution, or if the consensus surrounding laws, standards, or master plans provide no relief, little sense can be made of the problem. The smartest people in the world can make brilliant observations of these dilemmas and measure all their dimensions with greater and greater precision. They can take comfort in being more and more right about their observations. But they are still left standing with hand to brow. The violence and destruction that attends inequality and climate change can also become a matter of irrevocable non-human planetary or atmospheric conditions. And if you try to counter political superbucks with the pure descent of enemies and innocence, you only deliver the fight that nourishes their violence. How do you drop through a trapdoor to exit these dominant cultural habits, and how do you operate on the special powers of the superbug? This would be the customary moment to announce a new right answer in manifesto form. But against everything culture holds dear, on the other side of that trapdoor, nothing is new, nothing is right, nothing is free, and there are no dramatic manifestos, your enemies, or universals. That conforming move, though perhaps labeled radical, would be sadly conservative. Instead, maybe it is only a little easier to see the world at a different focal length, to see, as if through half-closed eyes, a matrix or medium of undeclared activities and latent potentials. Through the very ordinary and practical perspective of chemists, cooks, and parents discussed in the preface, it is easier to see that whatever the content of each of the dilemmas described here, prominent above all is the tendency to form loops and binaries that obstruct change. That potential, that disposition, is itself the object of concern. It is easier to see that ideologies, so firmly held, are often decoupled from what organizations are actually doing. A declared ideology and an undeclared disposition are misaligned. A populist ideology about distributed power and wealth is used to deliver power and privilege wealth. A global network of Dubai-style free-zone cities facilitates not its storied free trade, but manipulated trade. While flying under the flag of economic liberalism, a political platform maximizes the freedom of the wealthiest minority at the expense of everyone else's freedoms. And both left and right wing ideologies can result in concentrations of authoritarian power. It is even easier to see what the political superbucks are actually doing to survive. They use obfuscations and contagious rumors to create immunities. 
they appear to be brandishing ideologies when they are really conflating them or flip-flopping between them. Their lies, distractions, and confusions even seem to turn lexical expressions into physical force fields. One lie activates the rational restoration of truth. But the presence of many lies and distractions, too many to reconcile, begins to build up a Teflon coating on which rationality slips and slides. The superbuck scrappy and inconsistent use of ideology is only the means to manipulate its real target, the undeclared dispositions and temperaments in culture. Whatever they are saying, all they are really doing is sowing division or garnering loyalties and keeping everyone locked in the old loops and binaries. The confusion helps them reinforce their following or make everything about a righteous fight between them and us. And all this erratic activity, decoupled from content or declaration, further insulates the superbug from reasonable declarations or consistent platforms. While activism may require ideological declaration and confrontation, undeclared activities can facilitate untouchable accumulations of power and environmental forms of violence. For instance, a sharp leftist critique of capital may be essential to understanding its special traps and contradictions, and yet an exclusively ideological view may fail to respond to myriad other deceptions, concentrations of authority, or sources of violence. And political activism may never succeed without operating not only on declared ideology but also on other chemistries of power that often remain mysterious, unexpressed, or underexploited. But, most important to this discussion, on the other side of the trapdoor, it is also easier to discover opportunities to alter these chemistries or dispositions, to make them objects of design. Moreover, since space is often the non-lexical carrier of dispositions like loops and binaries, design in a spatial medium can be an especially potent way of operating on or disrupting cultural habits. And, by remaining undeclared, this design can also offer stealthy or environmental forms of activism. Designers have joined journalists, social scientists, lawyers, economists, artists, and others in exploring the globalizing world with all of its contagious and repeatable formulas for making settlements of all kinds. While it has been important to deliver evidence about violent and explosive forms of global development, reportage is not enough. Bored with another precise measurement or another rhetorical critique to be consumed within the venues of cultural production, this is a discussion about manipulating the spatial medium. A language of design in space is as legible and consequential as any other lexical or quantitative language to which culture gives authority. An understanding of spatial variables even expands what culture regards to be innovation, and it is crucial to anyone working on the world. Luckily, design is something anyone in any discipline already knows how to do. As observed in the preface, to work with these potentials in ordinary space is to work within a cultural blind spot that is right before you and a terra incognita where you have already been. Conventional design, it is assumed, must wait to be engaged by the market to prepare another right answer, a solution in the form of a building or a master plan. Alternatively, the critical design practitioner must work for the absolute defeat of this market. In both cases, the prescriptive, ideological, modern mind creates an all-powerful capitalism that is the chief source of opportunity or danger. But the same global space that embodies the most toxic loops and binaries, the distended urban peripheries, rising seas, wildfires, and free zones, harbors many varied sources of violence, lethality, domination, and discrimination, and it has special powers that inspire a very different kind of medium design. Direct political and legislative activism is crucial, even though it may advance slowly.
but design work in space need not wait for either the revolution or the client commission. It can begin even now to act with what may, at first, seem like unlikely spatial material. In this wetter, hotter world, a spatial medium presents not one enemy but rather many fronts and not one metric but rather many metrics, many sources of both productivity and danger that dominant markets often even discard or overlook. When ideological impasses obstruct change, medium design can trade in these alternative spatial markets where many forms of value and risk are imminent in the heaviest physical solids. Setting aside exclusive faith in econometric, informatic, or legal expressions, it can work simultaneously on multiple, varied, overlapping experiments passed by many heterogeneous variables on many different platforms. Aspiring to find the solution, declare the end of a problem, or establish stability once and for all often results in a denial of information or an attempt to keep circumstance at bay, but medium design treats solutions as weak positions that do not take advantage of all that space can do. They create monocultures, and they are especially weak in the face of stubborn forms of power, duplicitous political actors, and changing circumstances. Urban space is not a steady state, and any intervention can be gained or corrupted, but medium design, like the superbucks, might find other ways to be resilient. Rather than prescribing solutions, like buildings, master plans, or algorithms, medium design works with protocols of interplay, not things, but parameters for how things interact with each other. Point 10 For everyone accustomed to looking for solutions, these forms of interplay may be perplexing. If asked to describe a field of objects placed before you in strong sunlight, you are likely to note the shape or color of the objects rather than the shifting patterns light stretching between the objects. And you might not ask for more time to observe a cycle of changes before applying. Transposing from a nominative to an active register, the intent of designing interplay is not to fix positions but to initiate interactivity, to disrupt loops and binaries. There may be no single new technology or magic bullet but rather a shift in the relationships between things. There may be no single event but rather an unfolding gradient of events. The designer is then temporarily manipulating the chemistries of assemblages and networks. Interplay can rewire an organization, set up interdependencies, or initiate chain reactions. It is the design of platforms for inflecting populations of objects or setting up relative potentials within them. It is less like designing objects and more like adjusting the faders and toggles of organization. These spaces of interplay build another kind of resilience in the face of dilemmas, but, even when they deal with heavy physical components, they also offer a way to react expeditiously and achieve scale in urgent situations. Some of the replicating spatial products that are spreading rampantly around the world contain multipliers that, when reverse-engineered, have the capacity to amplify a change. Nothing works, and to worry that things might go wrong is to miss the point. Things will always go wrong. There are only organizations with greater or lesser capacity to provide relief or productivity. And a time-released interplay, like a software that is constantly updated, might have both the practical capacity to react to changing conditions and the political capacity to respond to the moment when it is outmaneuvered. An interplay is a form that keeps working when things go wrong. It is even something that should not always work. Returning to the political stealth of a spatial palette, an interplay is not an object with a name, shape, or outline. It is the shaping of dispositions and activities, and, like the work of the chemist, cook, or parent, it can remain undeclared. 
it might wriggle between ideological binaries. It might even work persistently and impurely to confound political superbucks by using their own techniques. Medium design would then be something like playing pool, where knowing about one fixed sequence of shots is of little use. But being able to see branching networks of possibilities allows you to add more information to the table and make the game more robust. In pool, you don't know the answer, but with great precision, you know something about what to do next. The balls are sometimes attached to known forms or rules of play, but the art of pool involves assessing their collisions. The player knows how to respond to a string of changing conditions over time with an explicit organ of interplay. Medium design, like pool, is indeterminate in order to be practical. And because things are very different on the non-modern side of the trapdoor, just as indeterminacy is prized over solutions, entanglement is prized over freedom as a means to achieve more equitable rights and relations. Freedom from oppression, as occupation, discrimination, or slavery, can never be equated with confused notions of economic liberalism or libertarianism. Sidestepping some of these conundrums associated with freedom and emancipatory manifestos, robust organizations can rely on mutual obligation, checks and balances, offsets, and bargains. An interplay might distribute authorship and agency to many players or provide those players with a means to act where there is a will to do so. This medium design may be a way to get on with it or work around the modern mind. And to that end, the first chapter, different from all the others in this book, assembles a relay of medium thinkers, analysts of socio-technical networks, political theorists, media theorists, designers, artists, and others, to further rehearse those expressions of activity and disposition for which culture has a blind spot. While managing these activities is an everyday practical matter, rare is the formal recognition of latent properties or potentials as carriers of information and consequence that should have authority in global decision-making. The chapter dwells on disposition in space until it is no longer so easily eclipsed by solutionist thinking. And as it hands off to designers, the relay considers interplay as an innovative form that can expand the design repertoire to serve both spatial and non-spatial innovation. Designing is entangling, the simple act of encouraging interdependence. The four chapters following this initial set of contemplations each find fresh powers and practicalities in more and more non-modern inversions of default cultural scripts. Moving from the domestic and urban to increasingly environmental scales, each addresses dilemmas introduced above, from land use in urban peripheries to inequality, automation, climate change, and migration. Each also cumulatively draws from the content of previous chapters. These four chapters are organized in four parts. The first part surveys a situation, while the second part considers shifted perspectives that medium design might offer. The third part models relevant examples of interplay, and it may sometimes read like a playbook tracking the changing sequential moves of an unfolding game. The fourth part considers the cultural narratives and persuasions that must also be designed to propel a change through culture. It may not be enough to mix new chemistries of space in the absence of these narrative catalysts that can also alter the physical contours of power. To further nourish activist calculations, brief interludes between the chapters consider iconic episodes of political metastasis or remission that remain mysterious in part because of their underlying or unexpressed activities and dispositions. Culture often longs for comprehensive solutions to perfect or defeat what it believes to be a single financial market of exchange. 
but in Chapter 2, Solutions are Mistakes, there are multiple markets of exchange, and the interplays that shape them should not always work. Repeatable dwellings in the sprawling urban periphery are agents of inequality and climate change. Some are spatial products like McMansions, while others are precarious constructions of poverty. Economic solutions may promise to solve urban problems by fulfilling the dreams of economic liberalism, but medium design considers multiple experiments and mixtures of spatial and financial variables, a broader portfolio of proximities, densities, morphologies, and situated relationships offering more tangible forms of exchange, risk, and reward. Both historical and contemporary examples of interplay, rehearsed in projects around the world, begin to animate heavy spatial assets and values derived from arrangement. The examples offer safeguards and forms of resilience as they unfold over time and become more entangled in social, political, and environmental ecologies. In a culture galvanized by visual evidence and quantifiable solutions, designs that operate on latent unfolding potentials may not initially have sufficient authority in global decision-making, however explicit they may be. But, precisely because they encourage interdependence, forms of interplay may even be behind the success of some economic approaches. Interrupting the modern quest for the new and the emancipatory, Chapter 3 looks for sophistication not in the succession of technologies but in the relationships, even entanglements, between technologies. The contemporary digital ubiquity that sponsors new dreams of automated transportation often eliminates the information imminent in space in an attempt to be smarter. When culture replaces incumbent technologies with new technologies, it often reaches for something regarded to be more sophisticated but returns to something more primitive. This habit works against the premise of digital architecture itself, that organizations are more information-rich when they are messy and redundant. Although it may be clear that the exclusive or pure embrace of the new and the modern makes culture dumber, the impure embrace of coexistent technologies is surprisingly less common. The coexistence and interplay between emergent and incumbent technologies redoubles the material for design ecologies. The approach treats the physical material of space itself as a heavy information network. Potent and complex spatial variables do not need the screens and sensors of the Internet of Things to animate their stiff arrangements. They are already dancing. The chapter considers switching interplays between low-capacity autonomous vehicles and high-capacity transit as a robust, diverse exchange between digital information and heavy information and perhaps the most plausible approach to the coming transitions in transportation. Persuasions that accompany these interplays can expand and renovate the ways that culture characterizes innovation while reaching into popular culture to manipulate expectations associated with mobility. Inclusive of more than the digital, physical space may be an underexploited medium of innovation with the capacity to mix different species of information, technical, cultural, political, to be truly information-rich. And while switching between transportation modes is regarded to be an impediment to freedom of movement, it may really be a release into the richness and speed of entanglement. While problems are typically treated as something to be hidden, discarded, or redeemed with a solution, Chapter 4 considers the productivity of multiplying and combining them. Climate change exacerbates all the failures discussed in this book, but spatial assets facing environmental or financial failure can often be useful precisely because they have failed. While the modern mind is deflated by failure, medium design exploits the potency of problems rather than trying to tame or solve them. Problems carry with them the potentials associated with needs and experiences. 
It is not even the content of problems but rather their interplay that is most important. Interplay can combine problems as raw materials to leaven and catalyze each other. The interplays discussed in this chapter turn needs into a currency of exchange. They arrange urban castoffs in new ecologies. They even leverage climate risks to gain relief from those very dangers. The cultural narratives that attend these interplays are about ratcheting changes that can quickly gain scale. And they envision a planetary network of failures and remainders, a terra incognita that is constantly renewed and explored. While overt displays of violence attract the attention of most familiar histories, Chapter 5 considers prevailing latent temperaments in organizations. In medium design, organizations have an inherent temperament. In the same way that glass does not have to break to have a brittle disposition, they have a capacity to include, exclude, nurture, or harm, even in the absence of event or declaration. The interplays previously discussed, about inequality, mobility, and climate change, all impact patterns of global migration. Rather than the drawn sword, the gunshot, or the military battle, all mainstays of historical narratives, global migrations often embody what sociologist and mathematician Johann Galtung calls structural violence. And humanities scholar Rob Nixon identifies migrations impacted by slow violence, the disproportionate damage and attrition inflicted by inequality that is also often accompanied by environmental, atmospheric threats. Point 11 The interplays discussed here demonstrate the ways in which latent violence can work very differently from overt violence. Adding more inversions, in the medium design that considers temperament, joining a fight can be capitulation, and submission can be empowering. The final interplay considers climate change and migration together as the prompt for transnational forms of exchange and cooperation that bypass the ideological and diplomatic deadlocks over global warming. Like the parent mentioned in the preface, design can adjust temperament and reduce violence in organizations, but the modern mind spins most of its cultural narratives around conflict and even sees peace as a corollary of war. Medium design replaces those tedious narratives with stories of migration as an adventure prompted by changes to the planet. This environmental exploration has no front lines but is instead distributed everywhere, at the scale of both microns and atmospheres. An afterword looks for special activist tools in superbug tricks and other mysteries featured in the interludes, moments when undeclared dispositions deliver political outcomes that diverge from expectations or declared ideologies. Consider one such trick. During the 2016 presidential election in the United States, counterfeit social media posts used inflammatory racist rhetoric to incite not only political parties but social undercurrents. If focused on the injustice of a racist post, the ideological activist had no choice but to march in the streets to condemn this hate, and that activism will hopefully, eventually yield systemic change. But considered in terms of disposition and temperament, in the short term, a binary divide helped to elect Donald Trump. The superbucks can convert dissent associated with an opposing ideology into fuel for their own engine. Direct activist stances must remain resolute, but supporting and expanding this activist repertoire, design needs to be as good as the superbucks at both manipulating dispositions and telling contagious stories. Design can contribute to what philosopher Jacques Rancière has called dissensus, not the ossified consensus that is often the goal of power and the end of politics, but the destabilizing of aesthetic signals as they bounce through culture. 
beyond declared intentions, works of art and design can shift political ground through the undeclared or ongoing activity they initiate under the radar.12 interplays, or the narratives that accompany them, can neutralize a binary, take advantage of a multiplier, or find a means to leverage or switch a flow of potentials. The designs may make something contagious or generate a Teflon surface of their own. While not betraying an ideological creed, they may sometimes work on an undeclared disposition threatening that creed. They may offer an emotional message that has a surprising cultural bounce because of its inconsistency, irrationality, outrageousness, cuteness, or violence. And they may require a strong stomach for the impure narratives that nevertheless move toward greater justice. Medium design is not a thing. It has no content. It is only an ever-present approach to many things, an expanded means to generate change outside of some dominant cultural habits. After taking a hard pass on utopian proclamations and master plans, some of what remains are extra-political and aesthetic capacities in spaces of interplay, the latency, indeterminacy, entanglement, heavy information, failure, temperament, and discrepancy that the modern mind abhors. It is an endeavor that may not be for everyone. Instead of seeking solutions alone, you can address dilemmas with responses that do not always work. Multiplying problems can be helpful. Messiness is smarter than newness. Obligations are more empowering than freedom. Histories can expand to include latent dispositions as well as discrete events. And discrepancy tutors sly forms of political activism that might more successfully outmaneuver the world's most cunning superbugs. Interlude 1 among the superbugs many survival techniques, in addition to lies and obfuscations, are mediagenic fantasies of all sorts. But the mysterious political instrumentality of these messages may rely less on their content and more on their persistent deployment. During a 2018 summit, Donald Trump offered Kim Jong-un a movie trailer-style video projection of North Korea after the floodgates had been opened to the global marketplace. While the global press found its Hollywood stylings inexplicable, Trump was only offering the common currency of contemporary global real estate and trade. The video was just another of hundreds of similar examples produced in the render farms at the direction of real estate and infrastructure kingdoms all over the world. They usually advertise the contagious urban formula for free zone world cities, a seemingly bulletproof spatial superbug of global urbanism. With all the repetition and monotony of pornography, these three-minute clichés of global urbanism usually begin in outer space as a new era is dawning. Typically, in a city below, a Star Wars-style fly-through threads through a field of digital skyscrapers sprouting from the ground before swinging over industrial areas, container ports, and resorts. The voiceover announces all the neoliberal mantras of free trade, no taxes, cheap labor, streamlined customs, and deregulation of labor and environmental law. What a feeling, the theme song from Flashdance, plays as one video advertises its city's logistical apparatus. Point one, or a yawny-like soundtrack accompanies magnificent claims of world city urbanity enjoyed by Dowie cartoon humans rhythmically waddling along boulevards or plowing forward, stone-faced, in speedboats. A population of villas flips into place as more animated figures weightlessly pad through the lush gardens instantly appearing around them. A flyover surveys golf fairways shaped like pandas and fields of identical candy-colored villas. In the dramatic finale, to the swelling music from Titanic, confetti, glowing sunsets, 
and bursting hearts precede a pan back into the stratosphere, past fireworks and orbiting satellites. Even before the summit, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, DPRK, had created its own ecstatic videos that mapped existing or projected economic zones for industry or tourism on the eastern coast or on the borders with Russia and China. Subtitled in English by The Voice of Korea, one of these videos deploys the usual apparatus, including stratospheric views and a finale of fireworks. Throughout, it shifts frantically through a number of up-tempo musical themes, synthesized harps, organ polkas, patriotic marches, high-pitched accordion jigs, bongo interludes, or emotional lullabies and waltzes. Point to the White House trailer followed the prevailing template to the letter. It only diverged from the norm with an extra celebrity conceit, a pause to announce that the feature was starring Kim Jong-un and Donald J. Trump. In all of these videos, the rhetoric is decoupled from the disposition of the organization. The free zone is both a closed loop and a multiplier. It only circulates compatible circumstances, while also expanding into more and more territory and serving as an incubator for more and more replicating spatial products. It deploys all the scripts about the smart city, but it grows dumber as it grows bigger. In the name of freedom, emerging nativist arguments want to bring jobs back to the home shores of nations. But also in the name of freedom, corporations have been working for decades to build this vast international physical plant of free zones that allows them to take advantage of the cheapest labor in the world. And this free trade is actually manipulated trade that primarily privileges the freedom of corporations and offshore finance. But all of this is obvious, and none of it bothers Trump, Kim, or the zone. All three superbugs are way ahead of everyone. They know that contemporary urbanism seems to be largely driven by revenue streams laced with fiction. Spatial accoutrements within which there is an evacuation of law perfectly suit the dreams of real estate, totalitarian regimes, and political bullies. Characters like Trump and Kim provide strong evidence of many markets of persuasion and many sources of violence beyond the UR enemies identified in left-right ideological fights. Their totemic fairy tales are not pre-capitalist anomalies, but rather cultural constants that are only occasionally and inconsistently accessorized by capital. Superbugs would never rely solely on solutions, reasonable declarations, or consistent ideological platforms. In their own crude terms, that would be like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Solutions are too weak. None of the sentiments related to the free market, capitalism, economic liberalism, or communism mean anything apart from the populations they can mobilize through residual loyalty. The two leaders only have a sense of whether or not attention and power are consolidating around them. These are the dispositions, potentials, and temperaments that superbugs read so well. Unburdened by mounting evidence and running rings around earnest declarations, the superbug knows how to create chaotic atmospheres in the absence of meaning and information. The rough and bumpy surface of a shark's skin creates just enough microturbulence to aerodynamically streamline the animal's movements through the water. Similarly, the superbug's changing stories and contagious rumors insulate and lubricate its passage through a political landscape. The uninformed and unreasonable stupidity that others are futilely trying to reconcile is its white sugar fuel. In a 2020 press briefing for the Coronavirus Task Force, Trump referred to the virus as genius, a term he usually reserves for himself. 
Speaking about the 1917 pandemic and the ability of viruses to resurface, Trump said, you read about 1917 and you read about certain things, but you think in a modern age, a thing like that could never happen. Well, it comes back. It is genius, 3. It was as if Trump, who tirelessly refreshes his own story, recognized something of himself in a virus that constantly mutates to survive. While the turbulence and mutation that attends ideological flip-flops may be ephemeral, political superbugs can enable real biological superbugs and sponsor durable physical, territorial, and atmospheric changes. But the same potentials, present in unlikely territory and activated by interplay, may be effective antidotes. Chapter 1. You know more than you can tell. To better detect the ways that organizations are often saying something different from what they are doing, return to that blind spot that is right in front of you or the terra incognita where you have already been. Beyond labels, lexical expressions, or other declarations, the cook, parent, dog, urbanist, or pool player mentioned in the preface and introduction assess their environment by managing activities and relative potentials between things that unfold over time, chemical reactions, recipes, or temperaments. Culture may treat these latent activities as fleeting, elusive, or far away from an actual recordable world, but a reliance on discrete events and declarative statements as a reflection of the world is as dangerous as an ignorance of the incendiary potentials of explosives. As a chemist, cook, parent, or urbanist might attest, the most practical responses take activities and potentials into account. And these dispositions, like the tendency of some chemicals to explode or the tendency of culture to form loops and binaries, are often among the most impactful. That deadlocked oscillation between closed loops and binary oppositions can even create its own weather to obscure evidence of the real weather, accelerating climate change, sprawling urban peripheries, inequitable free zone markets, dumb approaches to smart technologies, or contradictory immigration laws described in the introduction. Whatever the content of these problems, culture's persistent and reliable tendency to search for self-reinforcing holes or square off in a fight is the perfect opening for political superbugs with a talent for manipulating those loops and binaries as a means to reinforce their own power. Even though many consequential activities may be undeclared, they can be deliberately designed or inflected. The forms for designing activities and potential may be less familiar than the forms for designing objects. They may be less about determining shape and more about orchestrating interplay. But, for reasons that will become increasingly clear, they might have the capacity to work on the runaway spaces of global development that confound designers, thinkers, and practitioners in any discipline. The constellation of medium thinkers assembled here, including urbanists, philosophers, scientists, political theorists, media theorists, psychologists, physicists, artists, designers, and others, generates a relay of thought. Their different expressions for activity in organization, performance, agency, disposition, propensity, affordance, property, and tendency, are words that appear in common parlance and will continue to appear throughout the book. Hopefully, they communicate broadly and avoid the unnecessary authority of terminology. The assembled thinkers continually pry attention away from the nominative or declarative and push the modern mind out of the way to return focus to common sense practicalities that may go unacknowledged. While the relay provides a road map for deeper dives into each individual perspective, the aim here is to make latent activity or disposition more palpable and garner intelligence for the practice of designing interplay in space. 
the roughly chronological order in which each thinker is introduced may not be relevant since the tradition, if there is a tradition, is often discontinuous. Thinkers are not rejected because they do not belong to a consistent school of thought or political camp. Some posit similar positions without attribution to previous thinkers while others work to more robustly synthesize this approach precisely because it is at once common and elusive. The reader is invited to triangulate between these and other thinkers who appear in subsequent chapters as the relay goes on and becomes more and more enmeshed. Knowing how, disposition. Ordinary language philosopher Gilbert Ryle has already offered to this discussion a contemplation of the difference between knowing that and knowing how, the difference between knowing the right answer and knowing how to do something. Point one, knowing how, like playing pool, requires the ability to react to a changing sequence of cues with practical skills that unfold over time. It would be impractical to say that you know everything about the shifting banks and shoals of a river, but you might know how to navigate this changing fluvial landscape. You can only know how to kiss, tell a joke, or land a plane in high wind. Again, practicality relies on indeterminacy. Ryle's The Concept of Mind, 1949, provides an animated discussion of disposition as part of an argument against the Cartesian mind-body split. Disposition is a latent agency or imminent potential, a property or propensity within a context that unfolds over time and in the absence of a reifying event or an executive mental order. Point two: A tendency or potential is latent because it may or may not be on display at any moment. Glass is brittle. Rubber is elastic. A dog is aggressive. But the glass does not have to break, the rubber does not have to stretch, and the dog does not have to bite for the potential to remain in play. This latency can be tricky in a world that favors lexical declarations and observable events. Ryle's deceptively simple discussion of a clown describes the way a clown knows how to be funny, but his unfolding response to his audience is not a single, witnessable act. T. He reason why the skill exercised in a performance cannot be separately recorded by a camera is not that it is an occult or ghostly happening, but that it is not a happening at all. It is a disposition, or complex of dispositions, and a disposition is a factor of the wrong logical type to be seen or unseen, recorded or unrecorded. Point three far from being hazy and unknowable, the knowledge associated with knowing how may constitute most of what you know. You know that a street with 50 doors has a different potential from a street with two doors. You know that transportation networks that are segregated have a different potential from those that are combined. You know that a building in a floodplain facing sea level rise now bears a potential risk. This know-how is not predictive, but it does nourish an imagination that manipulates potentials as well as events. And to consider these latent potentials in space is to begin to work around the modern mind and access some additional powers for design. Tacit knowledge Chemist, economist, and philosopher Michael Polony refers to Ryle's distinction between knowing that and knowing how in the tacit dimension, 1966. Inspired by Ryle and Gestalt psychology, among other things, Polony constructs a theory for enriching scientific inquiry. Exploring the ways that we can know more than we can tell, he warns against formalizing all knowledge to the exclusion of tacit knowledge. Point four too much formal clarity, Polony argues, gets in the way of intelligence. Repeat a word over and over, and its meaning evaporates. A pianist over-concentrating on proper fingerings is paralyzed and unable to play. 
Polanyi suggests that there are other relational patterns around which the mind is puzzling and building connective networks that may remain unexpressed. This kind of thinking contributes to hunches that are essential to scientific discovery. Point five tacit knowledge, considered in many disciplines, has often been used to describe the know-how that informs design decisions. Point six you have a hunch that buildings served by streets and infrastructure gain value through their spatial arrangement. You have a hunch that combining the two transportation networks mentioned above is more robust than keeping them segregated. But in a world that values quantification, even if it leads to false logics, how do you demonstrate the reliability of a hunch? Polonia's personal story also demonstrates the complicated relationship between disposition and ideology. Both Austro-Hungarian exiles, Polanyi and his brother, the economic historian and anthropologist Karl Polanyi, in their respective fields, searched for regimes with dispositions that distributed power and countered the tendency toward totalitarian regimes like those from which they had fled. But, however briefly, the brothers strayed into different ideological camps to the rise that same antidote to totalitarianism. In The Great Transformation, The Political and Economic Origins of Our Time, Karl Polanyi demonstrated the fallacies of a liberal, laissez-faire utopia that speaks of freedom while concentrating power. Although only initially intrigued, Michael was, with Austrian émigrés Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, a member of the Morn Pellerin Society, an inaugural moment for the rising neoliberal free markets as the means to counter totalitarianism. Point seven. Michael and Karl Polanyi were searching for similar dispositions of power, but political labels, like liberalism, were insufficient markers of intent. The same label energizes polarized political strategies, like social welfare or laissez-faire, while raising the question about whose freedom is being protected. Political ideologies can be decoupled from the dispositions they foster, and polarized ideologies can construct similar dispositions of power. Dispositive Disposition Oikonomia Philosopher Michel Foucault's used the term apparatus, or dispositive, to refer to cultural evidence that is not necessary manifest in declarations and overt events. When asked about his use of the term in a 1977 roundtable, he replied, what I'm trying to pick out with this term is, firstly, a thoroughly heterogeneous ensemble consisting of discourses, institutions, architectural forms, regulatory decisions, laws, administrative measure, scientific statements, philosophical, moral and philanthropic propositions, in short, the said as much as the unsaid point eight in an indirect echo of Polony's statement that we know more than we can tell, Foucault went on to. Make a distinction between the dispositive and the episteme, saying the episteme is a specifically discursive apparatus, whereas the apparatus in its general form is both discursive and non-discursive, its elements being much more heterogeneous. Again, it is about the said as much as the unsaid, 9 Foucault seems to be looking for ways to expose the mysterious or duplicitous ways that cultural powers and potentials might be embodied, not only in lexical expressions of law and governance, but also in spaces and arrangements of institutions and cities. Dispositive is a means to analyze the ways in which a particular discourse can figure at one time as the program of an institution, and at another it can function as a means of justifying or masking a practice which itself remains silent. 10 Foucault's use of the dispositive, or apparatus, prompted two other notable inquiries, one by philosopher Gilles Deleuze titled What is Dispositive? and another by philosopher Giorgio Agamben titled What is an Apparatus? For Deleuze, Foucault's dispositive models a world that does not adhere to the dreams of the modern Enlightenment mind. 
the dispositive is a tangle of lines of visibility and enunciation, lines of force, lines of subjectification, lines of splitting, breakage, fracture, all of which crisscross and mingle together. The dispositive contributes to the repudiation of universals. The apparatus yields no elementary particle. Instead, each apparatus is a multiplicity, each tracking distinct processes. Deleuze writes, it is in this sense that Foucault's philosophy can be referred to as pragmatism, functionalism, positivism, pluralism. Eleven Agamben also associates Foucault's dispositive with a practical world. He considers dispositive within a set of related expressions or a family of terms that share the same roots. The French word dispositive derives from the Latin word disposition, and dispositio is the Latin translation linked to the Greek word oikonomia, the economy or management of the household. Point 12 Foucault's own writings about the art of government liken it to a household economy with a parent who knows how to organize relations between people and things. Like the parent mentioned in the preface who does more than pass declarations. Point 13 Agamben's contemplation of dispositive also includes an invitation to Expand what might be considered to be apparatuses or networks beyond those that fascinated Foucault to include literally anything that has in some way the capacity to capture, orient, determine, intercept, model, control, or secure the gestures, behaviors, opinions, or discourses of living beings. 14 New York City's Commissioner's Plan of 1811 rolled out a grid over the whole of the island of Manhattan with the rigidity and bombast of a master plan. And for those from whom the Manhattan developers seized land, the grid surely possessed that violence. The geometry could be named, and the city could organize navigation with numbered streets. The grid could even serve as an iconic image of the city. And yet the matrix of the activities contained within the city grid often generated a very complex social and morphological fabric at odds with the master plan or the apparent neutrality of the grid. Parts of the matrix could be observed and formalized, but others were fleeting and undeclared. Some blocks sponsored enormous diversity due to countless social, technical, and morphological reasons. All of these factors and more, separately and in complex mixtures, constitute a dispositive. They contribute to situated, latent urban potentials or dispositions. And in the most ordinary ways, and without declaration, many people know how to contribute to this housekeeping in an urban matrix like the Manhattan grid. Affordance. Observations of the simple room mentioned in the preface, in which static objects like a table, chair, or teacup are seen to be actively performing, learn from the formulations of psychologist J. J. Gibson. For Gibson, each object is offering an affordance or accommodation that interacts with another. A flat floor accommodates the walking body, or the height of a chair corresponds to a bend in the knee. Like disposition, affordance can describe a latent or potential activity. You design the teacup to have a handle and the street to have a sidewalk, and you describe what it does in active terms. Gibson introduced the word affordance and developed it in his writing about perception over a period of years, but the most often referenced explanation appears in the 1979 book The Ecological Approach to Visual Perception. Point 15 Like others in this relay, Gibson, within his own discipline, is trying to get to the other side of a declarative register. Occasionally referencing systems theory, the environmental movement, phenomenology, or, like many here, Gestalt psychology, Gibson argues that while psychologists focus on the quality of objects, it is the affordances of objects, what you can do with them, that is first perceived. 
and while you might make declarations about objects and assign names and meaning to them, you can also observe affordances within an ecology of perceptions. Gibson writes, you do not have to classify and label things in order to perceive what they afford. Affordances are both physical and psychical, or a fact of environment and a fact of behavior. 16. While the object has durable potentials or capacities, it can be used in different ways. Before knowing the word rock, a baby picks up a rock because it fits into its hand. A rock that is four inches in circumference offers an affordance because it fits into an adult human hand. But that adult can use the rock as the building block of a wall or as a weapon to throw through a window. Designers join many disciplines that use the word affordance. Point 17 They are constantly working with or generating affordances like the teacup handle that allows interaction with a hand. In the Manhattan example, the short span of wooden timbers was an affordance corresponding to small lots, many lots in a block, and many doors on a street. A street that serves buildings affords utilities and the space for interaction between the buildings. A transportation network like rail affords capacities, speeds, and experiences different from those of a highway network. The risk of flooding due to rising tides is a negative affordance for a building in a floodplain. Nothing is causal or classifiable in these complex dispositives, but there are capacities to recognize when designing an interplay or ecology of spatial components. Actant Broadly referenced in contemporary culture, philosopher, sociologist, and anthropologist Bruno Latour indirectly echoes many of the thinkers assembled here with a theory about the agency of things. His actor network theory, ANT, models the matrix of activities that attend social and technical networks, in everything from the smallest scientific observations to the complex of planetary scale infrastructures and environments. Offering critique and expansion to yet another discipline, Latou notes that the social sciences often privilege human agency in these networks when they are really the result of interactions between human and non-human actors. Things are actants that induce action from humans. Both reciprocally format each other. Rather than making declarations about objects that reinforce existing assumptions, Latou calls attention to an unfolding trajectory of activities between humans and non-humans that is harder to determine. Point 18 Nothing then can be merely an object. Latou argues that you often observe active phenomena until you think you can declare what it is, its stable, essential competence. But what it is can never be separated from what it does. 19 All the components in all the examples above, buildings, streets, timbers, trains, highways, teacups, and rising tides, are actants offering an affordance. Latou distinguishes himself from some social scientists who precede him. For instance, he draws from a sociologist and anthropologist like Pierre Bourdieu, but attempts to escape Bourdieu's structuralist position. Similarly, Bourdieu's very particular use of disposition and tacit, without direct reference to either Ryle or Polanyi, while sometimes sympathetic to this discussion, would nevertheless constrain it. Disposition for Bourdieu often refers to an ingrained habit or a predisposition in a social structure, but in this discussion, disposition is a potential existing in socio-technical or human-non-human arrangements. Moreover that potential is often unfolding in relationships that are indeterminate and impossible to predict. Point 20 Also important to this discussion, Latour the rise, non-modern thinking. To simply recognize the uncertainties and potentials of entangled activities that defy modern declaration, hierarchies, and ultimates is to step into another realm of possibility, the other side of the trapdoor. 
he writes, another field, much broader and less polemical, has opened up before us, the field of non-modern worlds, 21. Assemblage. The relay becomes more reverberant in the work of political theorist Jane Bennett. In Vibrant Matter, A Political Ecology of Things, she draws on the work of many of the thinkers collected here, Latou, Foucault, Deleuze and Félix Guattari, Rancière, philosopher François Julien, and feminist philosophers Donna Haraway and Karen Barrett, among many others. Referencing Deleuze and Guattari, Bennett contemplates the agency of assemblages of things, from ordinary household objects to giant utility networks to hurricanes or wars on terror. Quoting Julian, she likens this agency to the Chinese tradition of Shao, the kind of potential that originates not in human initiative but instead results from the very disposition of things. 22 For Bennett, the 2003 electrical blackout on the eastern coast of the United States modeled just such an assemblage or political ecology. The electrical grid, Bennett writes, was a volatile mix of coal, sweat, electromagnetic fields, computer programs, electron streams, profit motives, heat, lifestyles, nuclear fuel, plastic, fantasies of mastery, static, legislation, water, economic theory, wire, and wood, to name just some of the actants. 23 Her observations align with those of Rosalind Williams, who, within the context of science and technology studies, stretches Foucault's notions of dispositive, arguing that gigantic infrastructure organizations challenge customary approaches to place-based resistance, because they are too large to be in any one place. Point 24 Bennett approaches agency and responsibility in environmental assemblages with no easy sense of moral liabilities or points of political leverage. Within the billiard ball causality of these large organizations, it is not especially effective to simply declare an ideological position against a single force. Outrage, she writes, will not and should not disappear, but a politics devoted too exclusively to moral condemnation and not enough to a cultivated discernment of the web of agentic capacities can do little good. 25 for Bennett, the blackout itself is a political act with the power to startle and provoke a gestalt shift in perception. New relations and public spaces emerged in its wake. She references Rancière's explorations of the unexpected bounce of aesthetic signals in culture. It is often not the content of the work but the ricochet itself, the action rather declaration, that carries the most important information. Point 26 When contemplating how to act on or within an assemblage, Bennett likens it to riding a bicycle, a skill that coincidentally is often associated with the tacit knowledge about which Michael Polony the rise. It is something you know how to do. Bennett writes, agency is, I believe, distributed across a mosaic, but it is also possible to say something about the kind of striving that may be exercised by a human within the assemblage. This exertion is perhaps best understood on the model of riding a bicycle on a gravel road. One can throw one's weight this way or that, inflect the bike in one direction or toward one trajectory of motion. But the rider is but one actant operative in the moving whole. Point 27 The bicycle rider, like the pool player, may be something like a designer, who makes no single prescription but rather makes many deliberate, even extremely precise and consequential, choices in an unfolding interplay. Media In yet another recent synthesis from media theory, John Durham Peters is among those media theorists who look beyond associations with communication technologies to consider earlier uses of the word media. He joins those returning to the Latin root of media, medius, as it has come to mean middle or melia or as it is used to describe elemental atmospheres like water, air, earth, or fire. 
In The Marvelous Clouds, Toward a Philosophy of Elemental Media, Peters contemplates this expansive return by referencing an array of thinkers in the arts and sciences including Agamben, Gregory Bateson, Foucault, Deleuze, Latour, Flusser, and Gibson among many others. Point 28 Media, Peters argues, are vessels and environments, containers of possibility that anchor our existence and make what we are doing possible. 29 His thinking aligns with that of philosopher Joseph Vogel, who considers media as an assemblage, of dispositive, in Foucault's sense, of heterogeneous conditions and elements, that cannot be predetermined. 30 In Peters's inclusive contemplation, every medium, whether our bodies or our computer, is an ensemble of the natural and the artificial, and WikiLeaks, corn syrup, whale oil, squids, Facebook, jet lag, weather forecasts, and bipedal posture are some of the topics that belong to media theory. Peters writes, infrastructuralism shares a classic concern of media theory, the call to make environments visible. 31 Peters and other media theorists express concern about the uncontainable relevance of media theory as the honey of the media concept is being smeared all over the place. At the same time, Peters speculates about media as an apparatus that has won just as much of a planet-steering role as have more basic nature, engineering media such as burning, farming, herding, or building. 32 To counter these fears of diluting the term media, and to address concerns about the vast territory that media as medius or middle may encompass, design might pick up the other end of this work by modeling a means to steer or navigate within a spatial medium. Beyond observations of spatial and infrastructural networks, media theorists and designers can join forces in experimenting with forms of interplay that actually inflect them. The interplay of active forms. Having gotten the modern mind out of the way, the thinkers and designers assembled here help to make latent activity or disposition self-evident, and most portray it in the most practical and common-sense terms, as a confrontation with what is real and impactful. A number of them refer to Gestalt perspectives that bring a background matrix into focus. Many also share a tendency to describe that matrix as lumpy, heterogeneous assemblages of potential in solids and atmospheres. They are suspicious of those cultural forms in any discipline that claim to be in a steady state or that claim to have found the elementary particle of the matrix. Looking beyond the names of the elements in the periodic table, the chemist is most concerned with their interplay or how they form molecules. Elements are what they are because of what they do. Similarly, beyond the names of objects, the political labels or overt claims of organizations, these thinkers shift from nominative to active registers, suggesting that interplay or bounce within the matrix is a crucial carrier of information, change, and political agency. As the relay hands off to designers, it is that interplay that is the subject of design. As mentioned in the introduction, designers who have begun to speculate and operate on global space, work with forms that do not fix position, but rather release agency or get things moving. As the word form moves through culture, it can describe many things from shapes and outlines to conceptual markers. But here, forms orchestrate an interplay between forms. The form is interplay itself. The form is an action. The action is the form. Like a calculus function or the delta in a mathematical formula, an interplay offers limits and behaviors. Like the differential in a car, it offers a set of interlocked gears that transpose one potential to another. The form is a change and the means to make a change. It is a theater of operations and actions, an explicit set of interdependencies that set up new potentials within the organization. 
Designing interplay, previously likened to playing pool, might also be likened to the housekeeping and bicycle riding mentioned in this discussion, responses that exist in culture's common sense or muscle memory. The activist designer is not designing a thing, but rather the means to engage, unwind, infect, hijack, or rewire an arrangement over time. They are adding a reagent to a chemical reaction, or the establishing a protocol to organize a sequence of code. This interplay is not somehow evaporative or unreliable, because it is not a quantitative or a visual expression of master plans and buildings, because it is latent, unfolding, indeterminate, and environmental. Quite the opposite. It may be more sturdy and reliable precisely because of these attributes. It is certainty that may be an impractical, even dangerous illusion of the modern mind. While culture derives or fantasize about autonomy or steady states, to generate any form is to create disruption in a world that is already entangled from every scale and perspective, from the social to the chemical and atmospheric. As physicist and feminist theorist Karen Barrett writes, all bodies, including but not limited to human bodies, come to matter through the world's iterative interactivity, its performativity. There are no singular causes. And there are no individual agents of change. Responsibility is not ours alone. And yet our responsibility is greater than it would be if it were ours alone. Responsibility entails an ongoing responsiveness to the entanglements of self and other, here and there, now and then. We need to meet the universe halfway, to take responsibility for the role that we play in the world's differential becoming. Point 33 Medium designers move through the world constantly jostling its solids into more interdependent relationships. In some ways, many of the examples of interplay that appear in the next chapters were there all along, but a fresh perspective only makes them easier to see or retune. The examples of interplay do not provide solutions or even a representative set of approaches. Instead, they begin to animate the world, leverage changes, and get the pieces moving around in ways that nourish a design imagination. Maybe medium design can contribute to this rich interdisciplinary conversation by modeling explicit practical techniques within urban space. Working against automatic expectations of equation, proof, master plan, or completed object, it can organize some explicit, deliberate, but unfolding organs of interplay that exercise their activist capacities in social, political, financial, and environmental economies of space. While continuing to call on more and more thinkers, the next chapters and interludes consider how medium design might address some contemporary cultural dilemmas. One considers an interplay of, not only financial values, but also situated spatial values within populations of dwellings that have often fostered inequality. Another looks at a switching interplay between automated mobility, transit, and other heavy spatial attributes in space. Yet another presents an interplay of failures and problems that might begin to address the dilemma surrounding climate change. And, combining many of these concerns, the final chapter examines an interplay to reduce the violence of migrations at the intersection of inequality, climate change, and conflict. Interlude 2. The Arma McCarthy hearings of 1954 were a watershed moment marking the beginning of the end for Joseph McCarthy and his fear-mongering attempts to target communists through the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. As the now-famous final straw is often portrayed, the army lawyer, Joseph N. Welsh, refused to engage an offensive line of questioning initiated by McCarthy, saying, Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? 
the courtroom erupted into applause, and in cultural hindsight, McCarthy was defeated. Point one, the change actually took shape over a period of weeks. There was already ample evidence that McCarthy's rancid tactics were dishonest and bullying, but facts made no difference to his means of exercising power. Welsh, himself no snowy white angel, provoked McCarthy into the endgame position by deploying homophobic sentiments. Perhaps even more important than Welsh's argument, the change was reliant on latent potentials related to the televising of the Armour McCarthy hearings. The broadcast served as a multiplier to expose McCarthy's demeanor and garner increased suspicion about him. Years earlier, in 1947, the Hollywood screenwriter Dalton Trumbo appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee, WAC, a committee that preceded the Armour McCarthy hearings but continued to function long after 1954. When Trumbo refused to provide any information to the WAC, he was convicted of contempt of Congress. He served 11 months in prison and was blacklisted in Hollywood. When he later wrote the screenplay for Stanley Kubrick's 1960 movie Spartacus, he was still writing under a pseudonym. Kirk Douglas's revelation that Trumbo was the author contributed to the eventual dissolution of the blacklist. Maybe Trumbo was intimately contemplating the chemistry of political watersheds when writing Spartacus. In a fabled scene from the film, Roman authorities make what they portray to be a magnanimous announcement to a field of slaves who are shackled and chained to one another under the naked Sunday. The captives will all be spared crucifixion if they identify the insurgent leader named Spartacus. Given the number of slaves, there is every chance that they will be successful in squelching resistance and maintaining their powerful grip. Kirk Douglas, Spartacus, stands in response to the request and is about to identify himself to spare his fellow slaves. But just as he is poised to shout, I am Spartacus, Tony Curtis, one of the slaves, stands with him and shouts, I am Spartacus. Then, one by one and in groups, more and more of the slaves stand and shout over and over again, I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Lawrence Olivier, a Roman general, looks on with concern. By going to their death together, the slaves instantly turn the tables on their captors. Rather than handing success to an authority already preemptively congratulating itself on a successful strategy, they force that power to extinguish all of its human property. The scene perfectly illustrates an interplay of actions in which lexical meanings and legal declarations, the name Spartacus, and the guilt of an insurgent under Roman law, become less important than disposition. When the slaves say, I am Spartacus, they tap into two resources, an inversion and a multiplier. By seeming to submit to or obey their captors, they satisfy the request, but when that submission is multiplied, it confuses and defangs the name and the power that uses it. Crying, I am Spartacus, when Spartacus is not your name, and when the effects can be multiplied, is an excellent example of dissensus. It disrupts the modern mind's sense of order, its favorite way of recognizing names rather than activities, and even the position of names as evidence in the enforcement of law. The slaves know that the name that is so crucial to the Romans is evaporative and something that can be bounced around until it signifies nothing in comparison to the hard, physical facts of slavery. Just as the superbug confuses ideological labels, this activism in the register of disposition confuses, even dissolves, the authority and consensus of Roman rule. Temperamentally, the slaves neutralize the violence of the authoritarian power and transform it into a brotherhood. 
the greater the cruelty inflicted on human property, the greater the chances that it can be converted into harm for those inflicting that cruelty. And the greater the chances that the entire group will choose solidarity because they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Political bullies often make themselves a source of special favors to individuals in the group to foil this calculation and break up the strength in numbers. The Spartacus moment is reminiscent of another similar moment of remission, the No campaign for the 1988 referendum in Chile that finally removed Augusto Pinochet from office. The referendum was to decide if Pinochet would stay in power for eight more years. After 16 and a half years of a brutal dictatorship that tortured and killed its citizens, the No campaign might have portrayed fear and horror that could no longer be tolerated. No would then be an adamant refusal. But the campaign chose instead to associate it, no with positive rather than negative energy. The No logo featured a rainbow and the television ads offered a goofy comedy featuring people joyously celebrating and looking into the camera with broad smiles. They wagged their finger with a silly version of No that really meant yes. Music accompanied picnics, somersaults, collapsing walls, and bands of cheerful people singing the lyrics, Chili, happiness is coming. It was a brilliant calculation that succeeded in outwitting Pinochet's hammerlock on power. Precisely because so much global development makes urban space into spatial products or repetitive precipitates of financial abstractions, medium design can deliberately shape components that will act as a germ in these fields of repetition. Multipliers, like the multiplication of the name Spartacus and the broadcast of hearings or campaign ads, can be accelerants for interplays. Replicating products in contemporary space potentially strengthen the various regimes of capital that create them, but, as mentioned in the introduction, they might also be carriers of their own reversal. And when they contain inversions of meaning or expectation, they have extra powers of dissensus.